talking and it don't make sense Tell me what it's all about The truth is stranger the closer you get To the who, what, where, when, how Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Guess what I heard Guess what I heard Hi, this is Know What I Heard. I'm Jamie, and the topic of this episode is immigration. And my friend Esther joins me. She's going to share her story about immigrating to the U.S. from Australia. And we just talk about a lot of just kind of the stereotypes of immigrants and how in the U.S., unfortunately, race plays a huge part into people's views of immigrants. She shares her thoughts on ways that the immigration policy in the U.S. could be improved. I'm going to talk about a lot of things, but Esther is incredibly smart. She has a lot of great ideas, and I absolutely loved having this conversation with her, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it too. So here we go. All right. Far away, my dear. Okay. Uh, I mean... First things first, I guess I just kind of wanted to, you know, hear the story of how you ended up in the U.S. from Australia. Okay, sure, sure. Well, I'll try to give you the somewhat abbreviated version. So um, many, many moons ago, a long time ago in a world far away, (laughs) um, I was actually in teacher's college because I foolishly thought that I should be a teacher, which was probably a bad plan. But at any rate, I was in teacher's college and um, I used to watch Wheel of Fortune with my mum and they were looking for people to go on Wheel of Fortune in Australia. Um, we went and auditioned for Wheel of Fortune and I got to go on Wheel of Fortune and I won um, quite a lot of, uh, in the way of prizes, about $22,000 worth of stuff, which, you know. What? That- <laughs> Yeah, no. Did I never tell you the story? No. No. Okay, so it was a freaking fortune, right? But here's the thing. So they didn't have cash. They had prizes. And the one thing I wanted, because I was a struggling, you know, poverty-stricken student at the time, I wanted a microwave oven. And that was the first thing I won. And I actually won two of them, which was kind of cool. So I gave my grandma one. Um, I won the major prize around a couple of nights. And uh, one of the prizes that I won that I didn't want to win was actually a boat cruise. Um around the um, the Barry Reef in the Whitsunday Islands because I get terribly seasick. And as luck would have it, the cruise company folded, so they gave me $2,000 instead, and I bought a round-the-world ticket. And when I was 21, I hopped on a plane, took my $1,300 in savings and my URL pass to catch the trains in Europe and um, hopped on a plane and went to Europe. And in Europe, I saw my former husband across the street after we'd both done the Heineken Brewery Tour in Amsterdam. So that should give you some idea of the beer goggles and other goggles. (laughs) Saw him across the street and thought, oh, I need to go over and introduce myself to him. This is really important. I think it might be life-changing, that that feeling. Um, And as it turned out, it was. So I I went across the street and introduced myself. And I was coming to the U.S. anyway because I had relatives in Colorado. And... um, so I came to the US and uh, we fell in love and I went back and decided I really didn't want to be a teacher anymore, which was good. Um, <laughs> actually, I would already switched to journalism. Um, so we had a long distance relationship for, I think, a couple of years. And I finally moved over and we got married and we were married for 20 years, actually. Huh. Yeah. So that 
that was the shortish version of the long story, I guess. Yeah, I'd never heard that story because I just kind of assumed that you were like, I'm going to the U.S. Well, I mean, I wanted to go to the U.S. anyway. So part of my round the world ticket did include going to the U.S. It just I hadn't included him in the equation when I first bought the ticket. Um, right. Um, he was from actually Rhode Island. And um, I said, hey, I'm going to New York. And he said, oh, come up and stay with me and my family. And and I did. And so I stayed and stayed. And then finally went back to school and came back again and went back to school and finished. I graduated early and because I was strongly motivated to get back here and, um, and moved over here when I was, um, gosh, 22. So a long huh. time ago. So when you kind of set off on your trip from Perth did you that part of you think that you might end up staying somewhere else or did you have kind of no not at all no I I truly just intended to go on this great little adventure for a few months and go back and go to school and and graduate and um you know sort of work in Australia primarily uh I was doing journalism at the time so I thought well maybe I'll be a war correspondent or something and then this was actually during the original Gulf War and um, then it turned out the journalists were getting murdered so I decided that probably wasn't such a great occupation to have. Um, (laughs) So I ended up working at community newspapers for a long time and when I came here I sort of worked in some other jobs but you know primarily it was in um, community newspapers originally and then when the internet came along I sort of moved into the internet as well um, and did a bunch of other things along the way too. Whenever, like, you first were living in the U.S., what were the big differences that you noticed between, or I guess what were the big changes that you had moving from Australia? Well, I, th- I think um, in Australia we sort of uh, were the beneficiary of both a, sort of an English um, culture as well as an American culture. So when growing up I used to watch American TV shows and English TV shows and Australian TV shows. And, in fact, it's funny, I remember as a kid watching an episode of The Love Boat, and now I really am giving away my age, and Olivia Newton-John was on The Love Boat. And I thought, oh, my goodness, doesn't she have a funny accent? Not realising <laughs> that that was an Australian accent because every I was so used to hearing the American accents. You know, and, of course, we had Sesame Street and, you know, Happy Days and all the, all the good stuff. So it wasn't so much that it was a, a culture shock, as I imagine it would be for someone who was from a, a different country. It was more, I suppose, a little bit of an attitudinal change Um, In Australia, certainly, you know, if people are horribly successful, we have something called tall poppy syndrome. We don't want anyone getting too big for their boots. Whereas over here, I think it's encouraged to uh, get big for your boots, you know, and I I think that that actually was a very beneficial thing for me because it encouraged me to stretch and reach and aim a little bit higher rather than just settling for things, which is what I might have done there. I think the the most challenging thing, um, though, about being here was just the profound loneliness, being away from family and friends, because I moved over here before the internet um, really took off. Right. Yeah, I'd already been here for probably three or four years before we even got AOL. Um, So it was profoundly, profoundly lonely, which was really tough. And I was probably homesick for about 10 years, I think, um, before I finally realized you know that I could make a go of this and stay here and I think that's a fairly common experience for most immigrants it doesn't matter where you come from if you've given up the life that you've had to have a different life it doesn't matter how great that different life is you still miss the comfortable and the familiar and you miss the people that you love so right 
Um, so as far as, as your family back in Australia, how like do you make trips back on occasion or how often do you still talk with them? Yeah, I I do. And, you know, in the beginning uh, before we had kids, I was sort of back and forth every year or two. Then once we had kids, we were going back about every three years. We'd take the whole family and go. I mean, it gets kind of expensive back then, the airline tickets, but probably, you know, four or five of us were $10,000. And, you know, because it's so expensive, you do want to go for a length of time. So then you've got to pay all your bills while you're away. So it was not a cheap endeavor, even when you took into consideration the fact that we had, you know, free accommodation there um it's not a cheap endeavor to, to go back and forth and you know my my former husband and I had a split gosh seven and a half years ago and I decided a change of career was in order and so I went to nursing school and when I finally went to Australia uh the most recent time it was two years ago and it was the first time I'd been in I think goodness it must have been about eight years which was really wow. yeah and thankfully in the interim, you know, we have the internet, we have Facebook, we have, you know, video chat, all that great stuff, mm-hmm. um, which makes it much more manageable. But there's nothing there's nothing quite like actually being there. So I had gone over there uh, with my current partner a couple of years ago, and um, he's a pilot, so fortunately he gets very <laughs> discounted airline tickets, <laughs> nice. which makes it much, much easier. Um, so we had gone over together and um, got to catch up with people, and it was it was fabulous. My mum turned 70. We had a big party for her. Uh, we were actually planning on going back in April of this year, but then um, COVID hit, so uh, it's been a little bit stressful. She's in good health, which is great, um, but I belong to an Australians in America Facebook group you know, a lot of the people on there have experienced loss while they've been here. You know, they've got friends or family members who've died suddenly or who, you know, have a terminal illness or something. And when you go to Australia, uh, you do need to quarantine for two weeks now when you hit the shores. And the government was paying for those quarantine hotels, but now the person has to pay for them. So that's, you know, a couple of grand stuck in a hotel for two weeks before you're allowed out to actually see people. So I'm just being that everyone stays healthy and well in the interim until I can get over there some point next year once we've got a vaccine. It's really hard. I mean, yeah, yeah. So, um, but they're very fortunate. My family's from Perth in Western Australia, as you know, and they're extremely fortunate. They had clamped down and got it under control pretty quickly. And so they don't really have any cases there at the moment. So um, they're pretty rigorous. They did seal their borders to the rest of Australia and um, to overseas visitors and anyone going in has to has to do the two weeks of quarantine and have a COVID test. So um, I think it's a good thing, you know, and they're, they're very lucky. I've got a little bit of Perth envy at the moment, you know, because everyone's back to school yeah. and goes around yeah. without masks and life is normal for them. So it's been an interesting experience to watch that, particularly from the perspective of, you know, being here in the US with the orange menace in charge. <laughs> it's been a little tough to take. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I imagine that pretty tough to just kind of see how things probably should be handled. Yes, and then to see how they are right here. Yeah, but it's funny, though, because, you know, talking about, you know, politics and and where I came from and all all that kind of stuff, I mean, my friends in Australia, they they talk to me and they're, I mean, they're gobsmacked by it. They said, how do you manage this? And I said, oh, it just feels like we're living in this parallel universe, which is really, that feeling has really been enhanced by living through a pandemic as well you know I mean I was in line at the post office the other day and I 
looked at all the people that were sort of standing in front of me. We all had our masks on because we were, you know, obedient and sensible. And and I just had that moment mm. of almost that out-of-body experience about this is just so tremendously surreal. You know, we're living idiocracy in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, it was just, it was quite a moment, yeah. But um, yeah. most Australians have say about Trump and they're generally not very flattering, we'll just say that. That was one of my questions that I had for you was just going to be the views of the U.S. and, you know, just concerns that maybe your family and friends might have of you living here. Like, I think a lot of people just stay in this bubble and they don't realize that people outside of the U.S. think that we are just dipshits. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They think the US is insane. They think that. Well, so firstly, when I first moved in here, uh, moved over here, I'm sorry, people were tremendously worried because of the guns. And, you know, I was a little worried because of the guns. And frankly, I'm still worried because of the guns. So that was that was a big worry back then. The the lack of willingness to do something about the the terrible tragic ongoing loss of life from inadequate gun control in this country is it's pretty mind blowing. If they don't enact gun control after the murder of five and six year olds, then they're never going to. They're they're, no, they're never going to. They. I don't think that there is enough uh, kindness in a lot of the people in this country. There's there's this real lack of empathy when it comes to that mindset of we're not giving up our guns. I'm not wearing a mask. Uh, it's impinging on my civil rights. You know, so on and so forth. And the Second Amendment and this, that, and the other. And I think to myself. You know, your right to life, liberty, the pursuit of justice and to have your guns actually does not supersede the rights of others to be safe from your actions. I think that there's this real mentality here of, you know, um, me, me, me. And, and I think we're actually seeing the culmination of that cultural mindset in the election of a president who is completely narcissistic and self-centered. We're seeing the evolution of that you know in in these um you know in these times right now we've got this pandemic where people are refusing to wear masks we've got federal agents willy-nilly abducting protesters off the street in you know oregon and we are really just continuing to see these tens of thousands of deaths every year of people from gun violence because nobody or not nobody that's incorrect plenty of people have empathy but I think that not enough of them, particularly in positions of power, have empathy along with the gumption to do anything about it. And when my friends look at the US, what they see is just this embarrassment. I mean, it, it, the US should be embarrassed right now um, because the rest of the world is looking at the US and saying, what the hell is wrong with you morons? You know, you, you've got people being murdered with guns. You've got people of colour being murdered by cops. You've got people dying from co- what the What the fuck is wrong with you people? Um, and yeah. so, you know, and Trump is, you know, gives it the whole make America great again and America is the greatest country in the world. I, I got news for you, Trumpy. It, at the moment, mm-mm. no, it's not. It really is not. It's um, it's pretty piss poor at the moment, as we'd say in Australia. Yeah, I mean, it's like uh, this should be the time that we all come together and there's more division than ever. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it just yeah, it's, it's pretty it's damn sad. Yeah. So kind of taking that into account, I guess, and just some of the negative, well, a lot of the negative things about the U.S., like what are the things that you miss most about Australia, other than family and friends, of course? I miss the beautiful, beautiful weather. I like the heat. I never complain about the summer heat, as you know. 
I miss, I mean, aside from the people, obviously, I, I, I do miss the climate. I miss that the attitude's a little more relaxed about things. Uh, I miss the fabulous public transportation there. We we certainly don't have that here. It's, it's a very um, car-centred society, at least in where I'm living. Um, some other things that I miss, I miss some of the food, but fortunately I can cook most of what I miss. And um, people are kind enough to send me care packages, which is great. It's primarily the people. It's the, And it's the smell as well, you know. And I, I can smell a similar smell when I go to Southern California and parts of Arizona. I think it's the eucalyptus trees. And I do miss the sound of the birds, the parakeets and things like that. They're, they have a very particular sound. Hmm. Um, but I think I've been here so long now. I mean, I've lived here more than half my life, so... I don't miss it as much as I used to. And there are lots of wonderful things. People are sort of encouraged to be successful. Um, we definitely could do with some decent health insurance here for everybody. I, I really can't understand it. As, as someone who works in healthcare, but also as a human being, I can't understand how it is that someone can actually think that it's reasonable to deny other human beings access to affordable healthcare like it. I just don't understand it. My brain doesn't, it can't wrap itself around it. It makes no sense. No, it really doesn't. But I guess, so, I, I mean, is there any part of you that would ever want to move back or have you ever considered in the past moving back yeah, to Australia? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when I was getting divorced, I thought, I just want to get the hell out of here and go home to mother. <laughs> but uh, she was kind of far away. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't do that. Um I think, you know, in the beginning, certainly I wanted to return home, but I had already made the move here. So I said, look, I don't want to put him through that, what I had to go through. So that was in the very beginning. And then we had kids and I said, you know, I don't, I don't want to uproot the kids and take them. Um, and so then, you know, you get entrenched in a life here and, you know, whichever country I live in, and this is the hard part. And I think this is something that every immigrant can relate to, whichever country you're in. You always have a leg in the other one. You're always straddling two countries. You're never completely one person again without that other part. You never go back to being who you were. And, and you know, certainly that's true of anything you do in life. But I think particularly when you move countries, even if I was to move back to Australia, you know, I'd be missing the US. I'd be missing my friends here. I'd be missing my life here, you know, my home, the neighbourhood, the job, you know, all those kinds of things. So. I don't think that it's particularly easy to go back to who you were before Before, in terms of being, you know, I'm never going to go back to being all Australian. I'll never be all American, but I'll never go back to being all Australian either. Um, so even though I think about it, and I have thought about it an awful lot during COVID, because as I mentioned, you know, Perth is, is free of COVID. I have thought about it an awful lot, but I hate to say it, if any of my friends and family are listening to this, I'm sorry. I'm probably not coming home, <laughs> which I, I get that. Sometimes still people are like, hey, you should move back here. And I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but I don't think I will because, you know, I have a life here. I have kids here. One day I'll probably have grandkids here, you know, and that's that's a lot to give up, really. So having raised your, your four kids here, are you relieved that they were raised here? Um, hmm. you know, that's a tough question to answer because I think I don't really, having not spent a great deal of time in Australia in the last 10 or 15 years, 
uh, I'm not sure that there would have been so different than here. I think the biggest influencing factor in terms of the kids has really been the accessibility of, you know, the online world and the cell phones and all that kind of stuff. I think that I've instilled some really important values in my kids, some Australian values. Um, my kids have a lot of empathy. They, And that's not to say, again, that Americans aren't empathetic. They, there are absolutely lots of them who are. But in terms of the cultural mindset that in it just for me, um, I think my kids have a pretty good understanding for the most part that we're all in this together. I've definitely raised them with a little bit of an Australian sense of humour, an, uh, an appreciation for you know, those those quirky little things that we see in other cultures. They're, I mean, they're hybrids as well. So I don't really have a good answer for you. I've raised my kids and they're American and I probably wish they were a little bit more Australian, but they're pretty good as they are. So they, they turned out all right for the most part. Um, so I guess I didn't even ask you, are you a citizen? No, I'm actually not. No. So that's that's actually a great question. Um, I was planning on getting my citizenship when um, Obama was president because I just had such a tremendous amount of respect for him. And I felt that the US at the time was just really doing wonderful things and was, was really going to be cohesive and he was pulling everyone together and we were going to do great and all this. And unfortunately at the time I was also getting divorced and going to nursing school. So I just didn't have the money to do it because it's actually quite expensive to get your citizenship. And, um, you know, then, uh, Trump came along and I thought, well, I'm absolutely not going to declare my fealty to this country underneath him. And I, I do know people actually who became citizens, um, with Trump as, uh, as the POTUS because they were too afraid of being deported because they knew that, you know, he was really sort of anti-immigrant. And these are not just immigrants from, you know, sort of Latin American countries and so on, but these were, you know, white, European, Australian, Kiwis, you know, all of that. They were going and, and getting their um, their citizenship because they were fearful. And so I think to myself, you know, if as white immigrants people are fearful of deportation from Trump, how must it feel to be a person of colour? Um, how terrifying that must actually be. And I sort of saw firsthand, I, because the health centre I work with, um, you know, we uh, serve low-income areas. We, we serve a lot of people who are documented and undocumented immigrants. Um, and so I, I did see sort of firsthand how a lot of them felt about it. I mean, they were afraid to leave their houses at one point, you know, and I was sort of handing out information to them on their rights as immigrants, whether documented or undocumented, but it was still terrifying for them. And, you know, I feel for them tremendously. I at least, you know, I, I think, Jamie, you know, is, um, you know, when we talk about being able to have camouflage, you know, like if you're, so if you're gay, right, and you want to live as someone who's, and be open about your um, sexual preference and, you know, gender and all that kind of stuff, um, that can sometimes be difficult because there's so many people out there who still are really discriminatory towards gay people, right? So I'm a bisexual woman married to a man, so I got to be nicely camouflaged for the majority of my life. I didn't have to really put myself out there. So I've always been pretty comfortable just being a bi woman because I never had to confront many people's dislike of who I was, right? So as a white immigrant, I'm nicely camouflaged. I mean, I had people who have actually sent me anti-immigrant messaging 
uh, through email or through Facebook and stuff like that. And I, I mean, and these are people that I know, you know, um, who've sent me this, you know, do something about the, the US should do something about illegal immigration and so on and so forth. And these immigrants and they're taking our jobs, you know, Schrodinger's immigrants, they're taking our jobs while simultaneously, you know, bludging off the state. Um, but they've sent me that because they, because I'm white. They send me that because I'm white. So in their eyes, I'm not an immigrant. I'm a, I'm a white person, right? So I'm nicely camouflaged. So I've had the advantage of seeing this from the perspective of an immigrant, but an immigrant who is not discriminated against. My experience has been quite different, I'm sure, than someone who is a person of colour, someone who comes from, you know, Latin America or, you know, some other part of the world that where people have brown skin. You know, because this country is pretty damn racist. I think we've finally actually all realised that. Um, and that's not to say Australia isn't. Australia is pretty damn racist too. But, you know, I've I've been lucky in that sense that I've been able to see that stuff. And I've been able to rectify it. I mean, I've taken those people to task pretty damn quickly. But it's just so interesting to see how people's perception of immigrants is coloured, pun intended, by by race, by racism. It's been really interesting. Yeah, it's I mean, it's kind of mind boggling to me because, you know, it's like these people that are bitch about, you know, people taking our jobs and, yeah. you know, we're paying for their health care. And it's like, you don't give a shit if it's a British guy. Right. You know, you don't give a shit if it's a white, a nice white you know, middle woman class, from New Zealand. middle-aged Australian or Kiwi. Exactly. You only care if it's some yeah. poor squad from Guatemala who's trying to escape, you know, a village being massacred, you know, during some kind of like neighborhood fight. Yeah. You only care about that person, right? We only don't want them yeah. here, right? So, you know, and it's interesting too, because, you know, people think that like immigrants want to be here. <laughs> and certainly, Many of us do want to be here, but maybe not for the reasons that a lot of racists think, okay? Like immigrants want to be here, not because we want your job or we, you know, want to, you know, take your place in life or whatever it is. We want to be here either because we've fallen in love with someone and we've moved countries or we want to be here, you know, in, in terms of like people who are fleeing terror, they want to be here because it's safety. It's not that they want to come and hang out with a bunch of Americans and, you know, laugh at American TV and eat American food. They are seeking safety. So I have a, a colleague who was a cardiology, well, he was an ER doc, but cardiology specialist in um, in Iraq. And he immigrated here because his, you know, his family and friends, their lives were threatened. I mean, gunmen opened fire outside the hospital he worked at. If he had, you know, he, he would have to treat you know, the opposition to the ruling party of, you know, whoever was in charge at any given time. And so his life was threatened repeatedly. He saw people being murdered on a regular basis. And so finally he made the move here. And, of course, you know, he came with his wife, who was a pharmacist there. He worked as a medical assistant while he went to nursing school. His plans to become a nurse practitioner. So this guy who is screamingly, screamingly intelligent, who was a doctor in Iraq, has been working as an MA for years while he's going to nursing school, still has more schooling ahead of him so that he can become a nurse practitioner, which is not anywhere close to the level of where he was practicing before as a doctor, right? And he gets discriminated against by people. People make rude and racist comments to him and around him 
okay? That guy didn't come to the U.S. because, you know, he, he likes to eat American food. He, di he didn't come here, you know, trying to take someone's job. He came here because his life was in danger. I mean, and, and I think, you know, and, and his children's lives were in danger and his, his siblings' lives were in danger. His wife's life was in danger. I mean, she's a pharmacist and she's working as like, uh, I mean, a pharmacy assistant now at last. But, you know, these are very accomplished people who came here for safety. And when I think about how difficult it was for me just in terms of the loneliness, trying to find a way to fit in, trying to create a new life here. Um, and English is my native language. When I think of how difficult that was for me, it must be a hundred times more difficult for someone who comes from a country where English is not their native language, uh, who has brown skin or black skin. So they're now facing that double whammy of a different language and racism. You know, and then there's this attitude from people that, what are you doing here? You're taking our jobs or you, you, you're bludging off the government. You know, and a, and a lot of people don't seem to understand that um, immigrants don't get um, medical care for very long, if at all. Like, you have to be a resident here for at least five years in order to get um, health insurance through Medicaid in, in Rhode Island. You know, you're not eligible for, like, you know, the housing assistance or for um, most of the other programs out there um, that, you know, permanent residents uh, would generally have. So it's it's definitely not the case that they come here and qualify for all these government programs. They simply don't. I mean, it's just <clears> not true at all. Um, you know, but so I yeah. gave an example there of someone who's educated and came here, but, you know, I'm sure that there are people out there who are thinking, well, what about these, you know, people from, you know, Central America or South America and they don't have any skills and they smuggle themselves across the border and they're coming here and, you know, they're stealing our jobs. I will tell you that the immigrants that I have met, and I have met many, um, who are working in unskilled jobs are doing jobs because most Americans don't want to do them. They are cleaning your hotel rooms. They are working in the kitchens. They are doing the landscaping. They are picking your fruits and vegetables. Part of the reason that there were some food shortages early on in this COVID pandemic is because the immigrant farm workers were being taken out with COVID and couldn't pick the crops. So imagine now if you didn't have all those immigrant farm workers there, you can't tell me that you're going to have Americans who are willing to do back-breaking work um, for, you know, 8 or $10 an hour. Simply not going to happen. So I think people have a very inaccurate view of why immigrants come here, what they do when they're here, and what kind of services are available to them. Um, and I think that for the majority of undocumented immigrants who arrive here, it's life or death. It's not a happy little, you know, picnic fest. Oh, I think I'll just move to the US for shits and giggles. This is life and death for them. I mean, you think about it. Would you really give up every single thing that you know, your friends, your family, your job, your language, all of that stuff, just for kicks, they are giving it up because of life and death. So, you know, when I hear people disrespecting immigrants, it just goes up me sideways. It really pisses me off because they have absolutely no idea what is involved for those people and how it really is life and death for them. Right. Yeah, I always have this huge frustration with the hypocrisy of it all. It's like these people are giving up 
everything that everything. they've ever known to yeah. be able to come here, bust ass for $8 an hour to be able to send whatever money they make back to their families, uh, which I think is absolutely honorable. And yes, if they came here and crossed the border, you know, in the middle of the night, whatever, they risk their lives for their families. And then you have these turds that are just like not working, living off the welfare system, feeding their kids Mountain Dew and Cheetos <laughs> for every meal. And they're the ones that are bitching about these people. And it's like, you know what, if I'm going to take what you know one of you i know which one i'm taking yeah <laughs> exactly yeah or they're the first ones that you know speak english or whatever they're the ones that go to vacation in mexico and get pissed when someone in a town can't understand them that you know that they don't speak english somewhere else in the world it's just like it's it's just such ignorance and i i yeah mm. i mean the the stereotype of the ugly american overseas is there for a reason you know, I, it exists for a reason, you know, when, when, and, and I am a big fan of traveling and I think everyone should travel, but when you travel, you know, keep your damn mouth shut for a little bit. Like, listen to what's around you. Don't feel that your way is the only way, you know, try to learn something from the place that you're going to. And this insistence that the rest of the world should speak English, like why? Why do we insist on that? We insist on it for our convenience, but like what makes English so much more special or important than, you know, Spanish or Chinese or whatever it is, you know? I mean, it's, I think, again, it shows a lack of perhaps empathy or a lack of willingness to learn, just a general lack, I suppose. But again, not everyone's like that. I try to tell myself that the majority of people are good people, and I think they are. Yeah. Convinced. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. There's been way too much shit going on lately that uh, just kind of enforces that people's minds are still very closed in a lot of ways. And it's frustrating and it's embarrassing and just really sad to me. So it is pretty damn sad. It is, you know, because this this country actually really does have a lot of potential. I mean, we really could do some amazing things, but you can't unleash potential without acknowledging, you know, the biases that you have, right? So I I just remember when I went to nursing school and they said, you know, one of the things you need to always be willing to do is say, what are my biases in this situation? How might this impact my behavior? And until you're willing to look at that, you really can't free yourself up for learning anything more or doing anything more or, uh, you know, just opening yourself up. So I think that when you have the mindset that you are the greatest in the world, you never look at how you can make yourself better. When you think that, then what do you have to learn, right? You're the best. You know everything. So what could you possibly have to learn? And that's why this is, frankly, such a clusterfuck at the moment. Yeah. So it's just kind of mind-boggling. Yeah, a little bit. So I, ha- I kind of want to backtrack and ask you, because I asked if you were a citizen. and I, Oh, yeah. So I kind of had, like, a couple questions about that. Sure. If Biden gets elected... Do you think you would try for your citizenship or have so, you kind of given up on? Yeah, no, I, I had thought about it. You know what I really want? I want a black woman. I want I want a woman president, uh, but I kind of dig having a black woman president or a Hispanic woman president or, you know, I, 
I'm a little bit sick of, you know, and Biden's a decent enough guy and, you know, despite his <laughs> proneness when it comes to, you know, verbal gaffes, but I would actually really enjoy seeing a woman running the show. I would. And so I'd be tempted to become a citizen if Biden were running the show, but part of me would really want to hold out until I've got a woman in charge. I I don't know. We'll We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. I can afford it now, which is good, you know. Um, so yeah, we'll see. We'll see what yeah. happens. Yeah. So what kind of what is that process then? Like what, what oh, is the process of for you becoming a citizen? This is the greatest part, Jamie. So you basically have to get this paperwork, and it tells you what kind of person they want to become a citizen. So you have to fill out all this paperwork, and then you have to basically give them a shit ton of money. And um, then you have to be able to answer like a bunch of questions, you know, about American history and everything, which I probably could do because I've, re- I've, I've watched an awful lot of documentaries on PBS. Um, but at any rate, the, the, the thing that made me laugh when I first looked at doing this and laughter in an ironic way, unfortunately, is that on the paperwork, it tells you that you have to be kind of of good moral character. So you have to attest to the fact that you were never in the Nazi party that you've never, you know, like gone and sold yourself or like, um, you know, done anything illegal or immoral or anything like that, that, you know, you're not a, a raging racist or anything. And it's just so ironic to me that if I want to become a citizen, I have to, you know, vow that I'm not those terrible things. But if by luck you were born here, you can be as fucking racist as you want. You can go be a Nazi and mow people down, you know, at demonstrations and you can throw your little clan hood on or you can carry your tiki torches. Weren't they carrying tiki torches or something at one point? Yeah, so, so you know, if you want to join this country as a citizen, you can't be a racist. But if you're already born here, ah, you're fine. You're good. Yeah, you can be a big old jerk if you're born here, but if you want to become a citizen here, you can't be. You know, and I've got no plans to join a Nazi party, just so we're clear, but, you know, when I <laughs> I just thought to myself, oh, this is really rather ironic and distasteful. So that might have been a little bit of a deterrent along with the money factor back then too. Yeah, it's like how many of our leaders could qualify for citizenship? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So what, um, I guess, what do you have to do to maintain? Residency? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm actually a legal permanent resident. Um, and so I basically have to renew my green card, which is not green. I think it, at one point it was yellow. It might have been pink at one point. I can't remember what color it is now. But basically, I have to go and renew that every 10 years or so. So I basically just go and do that. Um, the only thing that so if I was ever, and I have no plans to commit felonies, um, but if ever I was to commit a felony or, you know, accidentally kill someone in a vehicle accident, if you're ever given, as a permanent resident and a non-citizen, if you're ever given any kind of six-month sentence for a crime, even if it's a suspended sentence, then they can actually deport you back to your country of origin. Um, and I do like to drive fast, so I, you know, took that under advisement. So. You know, that that might be enough of a motivation, I suppose. You know, God forbid if I was ever in an accident where someone died or something, then, you know, they could deport me. And unfortunately, um, you know, what's happened over the years under that law is that people who have been here since they were, you know, babies, if they've had a drug conviction, for example, maybe they, you know, were an addict and then they did, you know, a jail time of like a year or something, they've actually deported those 
people back to their country of origins. And for a lot of those people, being deported back has been horrific for them because they may no longer speak the language of the country that they originally came from, that their parents brought them from. You know, they're deported back. Maybe they don't know anybody there. They don't have any family left there, things like that. So I saw an interesting study a few years ago of people who were addicts and have been deported back to Portugal, and most of them were living on the streets because they just didn't know anyone. They had nobody. Their family now was all in the U.S., and they had nobody in Portugal. So I think there's some very inhumane aspects of the whole the whole process of being a non-citizen, there's some extremely inhumane aspects of it. And, you know, if we want to talk inhumane, you know, let's talk about all those children who've been separated from their parents, you know, and um, in prisons, in cages, you know, at the border. So mm-hmm. I, I look at that and that just absolutely staggers me. Like who in their right mind can actually think that that's a reasonable solution to this problem? I mean, people all the time are like, well, how do we fix, you know, undocumented immigration, although they call it illegal immigration, which it really isn't because everyone has the right to seek refuge here, right? So everyone can be a refugee if they want to. So it's not really illegal immigration. You know, when I think about what they do and how inhumane it is and everything, I mean, it just, it's horrifying to me. I mean, it's really horrifying. And then, and people say, well, well, how can we fix that? How can we fix this immigration problem? The fix is not to build a bloody great wall that's, you know, partway is falling down and people can scale pretty quickly anyway. The fix is to actually make it better where those people are coming from. If you make life better for the immigrants in Guatemala or Venezuela or, you know, any one of a number of other countries, we have all these immigrants from those places because their lives there are not good, to put it mildly. So if you were to take those bazillions of dollars that have been allocated to that stupid bloody wall and actually work with the governments down there to make life better for the people down there, then I think that's going to solve a big part of the immigration problem. You wouldn't have people leaving. They wouldn't have any reason to leave. They could stay in their happy little lives with jobs that pay and live in safety with their friends and family so they wouldn't need to be coming here. That's a solution that I've never really heard talked about, you know, in government. And why isn't it talked about? Why has no one thought about that? And and that's disturbing to me. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like, that makes so much sense. Building Building this bubble around the U.S., doesn't do a damn thing no it doesn't I I don't I don't I just don't understand the thinking behind so much of it well it's very base thinking you know and and again when you as I mentioned earlier when you think you know everything you don't open yourself up to learning anything more right so you just do what you, you know I mean if you've got a hammer everything looks like a nail right whereas if you actually do think about why are people coming here what is their experience like to force them to come here? And what is it like when they're here? Then you're able to sort of open yourself up to the thought process of, aha, uh-huh, so maybe if we make stuff better for them there, they won't want to come here. I, I don't know that it's the only solution, but I think it's certainly something that should be looked at. I think it bears looking at. You know, the other thing too, the stupid bloody wall is most people who come here and overstay aren't coming that way. You know, we certainly have people crossing by river and by land and stuff like that but most of them are coming in on planes and arriving here and just overstaying their their visas and stuff like that so you know short of like grounding all the planes and denying everyone entry we need to find a better solution the wall's not the solution it's really not ridiculous yeah it's so stupid it really is isn't it god just daft yeah 
just the biggest eye roll that I yeah. could possibly do. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> if only they would listen to us. Well, yeah. you know, you, you have to put your ego aside if you're going to hear what the masses say. And uh, I think that's going to be next to impossible with the with the COVID idiot in the White House. <laughs> yep. I think we kind of touched on all the questions I had. Was there anything else you wanted to add? Or My rants weren't enough for you. <laughs> Let's see. Anything else I wanted to add? Yeah, just be nice to people that come here from other countries. They've probably had a really rough go of it or else they wouldn't have come here. So try to be nice to them, you know, and open yourselves up to their experience and, you know, see what you can learn from them. Everyone deserves to be kind to them. Agree. Yes. Yeah, take a second to ask a question and learn why they're here instead of judging them for doing exactly what you would do if your family was in the position that theirs is. Well, exactly. We all we all want better for our families. Right. Well, we all want safety for our families, you know. And actually, it's funny because I remember years ago, someone who, you know, is on the conservative side said, well, you know, they're, they're able to buy their way in here. And I thought to myself, what, you expect all refugees, all immigrants to be broke? Like people with money and successful lives aren't allowed to be immigrants, aren't allowed to feel their lives are threatened, aren't allowed to feel that they want their family to be safe. And it just really struck me that we have this notion of what an immigrant should be. So we have this idea that an immigrant should be someone, you know, begging on hands and knees for us to like, gather them up and, you know, let them in here, providing that they pass all those tests, okay, providing that, you know, they're not going to take a job that Americans would do and providing that, you know, they're sufficiently, you know, needy and, and you know, that we can feel, you know, morally or financially superior to them, you know, and the immigrant experience is so diverse. And, I mean, I'm only speaking to my own experience as a white English-speaking immigrant. The immigrant experience is so diverse. And again, you know, if you open yourself up to this stuff, I think that people can see it. But if you never open yourself up to it, then you don't give yourself that opportunity. And so you don't get to learn. So, you know, I I think definitely talk to immigrants about their experience, but also just treat them like human beings is the other thing. You know, just be kind and be nice. Treat them like you'd treat a friend. I mean, that's what we all deserve, right? Well, I mean, and, and it's like, go dig through a drawer of old pictures. Go go ask your family about your, you know, your ancestors. And these people are judging, you know, people wanting to come to this country when, thank God, we're all as lucky as we are living here that however many generations ago, whether it was yeah. one or two or three, someone packed a bag and they took what they had and they came over here and started a brand new life. And it was a much easier process then. They didn't have to go through all this bullshit. Now you're sitting here complaining that somebody else wants to make a better life. It's like, just take a fucking step back for a second. It's interesting you should say that because um, I was having a a good conversation with a work colleague this evening and we were talking about the fact that my immediate family, my father, his family came from Germany. They immigrated from Germany after World War II. And so I'm only, well, first generation Australian, I guess, on his side, you know. But they had an interesting immigration experience because they were in a an immigrant camp when they first moved there. And I think that there was a lot of, you know, violence and abuse and stuff in the camps, which I think affected my father and his siblings tremendously. So, you know, they 
I remember my brother, because they were from Germany, I remember my brother when we were little kids, like kids in school calling him a kraut and things like that. And I was just so perplexed by that. Like I was just so confused that someone would say those things about people in my family, because to me, we were just normal people going around doing our thing. And I think that for immigrant children to face that degree of dislike or even outright hatred for anyone who is perceived as other, whether they are a person of colour or an immigrant or both of those things or, you know, if you are perceived as other and you see and feel and experience that dislike or hatred of you or your family, I think this starts off a lot of confusion for that child. But I think that as you grow, your response as someone who's been subjected to that kind of thing could go one of two ways. It can cause you to become an advocate, uh, to become an activist, to really work hard to improve the lot of everybody, or it can make you really damn angry, or it could make you both, I guess. Um, That's certainly a a real possibility. Um, But it doesn't leave you unaffected. You know, so people also need to think about this from the perspective of what are my words doing to that person that I'm addressing those comments to? How how does what I say have an impact on that child, on that family, on that relationship, on that person's outlook? And I, I think it harkens back to that which I mentioned earlier, which is that empathy. We need to cultivate empathy in this country to a greater degree than what we currently have. We really need to be willing to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and really think hard about what it means to be them. And I think if we can actually manage to do that, then there's hope for us. I don't see a lot of it at the moment in certain sectors in this country, but you know, I, I think if we can do it, we can really uh, improve we can really have hope and we can really see a significant difference in how we treat those who are considered other. Very well said. That's like the perfect way to end this. A little hope. Oh, I do hope so, you know. I mean, and I I felt so much of it with Obama and then it was dashed with the idiot. But, you know, there's hope again. There's good people out there that are working really hard to make things better. And I hope that they manage it and I hope that they get into positions of power that allow them to effect that change, you know. I just, I'm not going to give up on this. I'm not. It's too important. Right. Me too. I really, really, really appreciate you just chatting with me and telling your story. And you crack me up as always. Oh, you're welcome, darling. I'll talk to you soon. All right. See you, love. Bye. Bye. Esther, thank you so much for joining me. I absolutely love this conversation. I appreciate you sharing your story and your experience and your insights on immigration, ways that things can improve. I think it's going to be really eye-opening for a lot of people. And just to build off what Esther said, just fucking be nice to people. Have an open heart and an open mind and some empathy and reach out to these people who are fleeing situations that most of us could never even dream of living in. And they're wanting to create a better, safer life for themselves and their families. Let's maybe live our lives with a little less judgment and a lot more compassion. You know, maybe some of those immigrants will, I don't know, come here, get a nursing degree, and help save American lives during a pandemic. Right, Esther? Anyway. Thank you guys for listening. 
Please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Check out the Facebook page. Stay healthy, stay safe, and until next time, hey, know what I heard? <laughs>